0: It's Megacom, the largest comic book, anime, gaming, and multimedia event in the southeastern U.S. returns. Megacon from March 21st through the 23rd, 2014, at the Orange County Convention Center in magical Orlando, Florida. Confirmed comic book guests include Frank Bruner, Neil Adams, Bill Sinkevik, Mark Wade, Ron Mars, Greg Land, Michael Golden, Dennis Calero, George Perez, Brandon Peterson, Amanda Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti, Kali Hamner, Carl Story, Renee Winterstater, Billy Tucci, and Brian Polito. Just added Nick Bradshaw, Adam Kubert, Dan Jurgens, Mike Miller, Kevin Eastman, Joshua Ortega, Digger, Bart Sears, Ethan Van Skyver, Mike McCone, Frank Thierry, Mike Mayhew, and Chuck Dixon. Confirmed media guests include stars from AMC's The Walking Dead, Torchwood, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Smallville, Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars, Star Trek and many, many, many more. Plus I, Scott Gardner, will be there representing the Two True Freaks internet radio network. Tickets are available online now at www.megaconvention.com Children 10 and under are free with paid adult ticket. That's Megacon 2014 at the Orange County Convention Center Magical Orlando, Florida March 21st through the 23rd. For information, contact info at megaconvention.com or visit www megaconvention.com that's megacon 2014 be
1: there
2: you know for years canada's sole cultural and geopolitical accomplishments were a near perfect track record of never exporting hostility and violence so why does anybody think they'd want Justin Bieber back
3: Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art.
4: His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun.
3: Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot fast? Who gives a shit?
5: It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. We'll be
2: to Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. I'm your host, Magnus, and I love comics, movies, and TV shows. But especially comics. And today we'll be talking about one of my favorite comic book runs of all time. Yes, we. Today I've got a very special guest along for the ride to help me sift through Detective Comics in the late 1980s and then through the early 1990s. So I'd like to welcome, for the first time to the show, Mister Norm Brayfogel, artist extraordinaire.
1: Thanks. It's good to be here.
2: <laughs> and we're glad to have you. Glad to have you. Um, you know, I remember it was uh, Batman: The Animated Series. You actually got name-checked on that show. Um, I was sort of up all night, didn't really have time to uh, double-check on which one it was, mm-hmm. but I do remember that you actually got name-checked on an episode of that show. And I thought that was <laughs> that that was pretty cool. Do you remember
1: specifically what the name-check was?
2: It wasn't an address, it was more of an intersection, it was like, you know, West 49th and Brayfogle. Yeah, I
1: think I vaguely remember hearing about that. I didn't watch every episode of that show, so I missed that reference and, and um, an episode with uh, Scarface and the Ventriloquist. Oh, alright. I didn't see that either. Okay. But that's, I'm glad I was in there.
2: <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's more than I can say, right? So that's that's pretty cool. <laughs> so. Um, and that actually kind of leads into actually one of the first things I wanted to ask you about was Scarface and the ventriloquist I mean that uh, the ventriloquist is one of my uh, favorite Batman villains and my understanding is that you were a co-creator or uh, how did that work?
1: Yeah, well since I was the first artist to work on the character and considered the co-creator That's pretty much standard in comics
2: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, but when I saw it in the script it was from Alan Grant the character was fully realized except for the visual, of course, although he did give a description which I closely followed pretty closely followed. He, he called Alan, called him an, um, a mild mannered accountant guy. That, that was all the description I got for the ventriloquist himself. And, but the dummy he described really well as Al Capone, carrying a machine gun and um, with a scar on his face, of course, scar face Al Capone. Mm-hmm. And carrying also, originally, I had him. As per the Alan's description, carrying a miniature piano, I forget what kind of piano it's called. It's a miniature piano. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I stopped using that after a while because it just seemed uh, well frankly, i never I've never asked Alan this, and I should because it's been a long time, but I never understood why he was carrying a piano at all, and it just seemed strange to me. And also uh, it was just kind of gotten away because he was also carrying a machine gun. And his arms were completely full, and it was more fun to have one of his arms flap around, but like when the ventriloquist would spin his arm around, holding I'm holding out, holding Scarface, and Scarface's hand. I get to draw his arm like
2: it was just you know um,
1: a towel with a hand at the end of it. Right. I wouldn't be able to do that if he had the piano there, so.
2: <laughs> right and that that you know it's it's kind of funny you actually mentioned that because that was one of the things that i had in my notes i was going to ask you about what exactly was up with the piano this whole time it <laughs> sounds like you're you and you you and i are in the same place on that so that's yeah. Fun. you'll have to ask alan that i guess
1: <laughs> i suppose maybe a google search on al capone might turn up something i never did that i never really thought about doing that
2: and i would do it actually right now except i don't want to lag my I don't want to lag Skype, but okay. Wow, well, I'll do that as soon as we're finished. That's that. That's a good idea. I probably will too. I'm going to make a note of that because I'm curious. Well, I'm not sure if this is pressure that you necessarily want or need, but I uh, I am going to put you on the spot and say that when I when I first started collecting comics, it's it's kind of a long roundabout story. But what ended up happening was I ended up going to uh, the mall later that <laughs> night with the intention of. Buying comics, and uh, the idea was that I'm going to keep these things for the rest of my life, and you know all of that. Basically, the uh, the basics of uh, anyone starting to collect, right? How old were you? I was uh, nine years old.
1: God, and you're thinking about collecting for the keeping things for the rest of your life at nine?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, well, I like to plan ahead.
1: I didn't think of the rest of my life at all at that age. I I don't think I thought of my life past the age of 40.
2: (laughs) Well, there you have it. Yeah.
1: The last 10 years of my life have been like uh, an ongoing surprise to me.
2: (laughs) Well, it, it gets even better because this is uh, Detective Comics number 618. This was the start. I I never figured out how to pronounce this this character's name, but basically, this is the storyline where uh, the beginning of the storyline where Tim Drake's parents get kidnapped by this sort of voodoo doctor.
1: The Obeah man.
2: Yeah, oh, there you go. The Obeah man. No, I'm, and, not
1: actually, um, yeah. offhand, I'm not actually sure of that pronunciation, but I think that's correct.
2: All right. Well, that was the very first comic book i ever bought with the intention of collecting now you know when i was a kid you couldn't swing a dead cat around by the tail without knocking over a hey kids comic spinner rack it was just all over the place comics were ubiquitous in my youth but this was the first time i bought a comic book with the intention of collecting what did and, you say that the sign said hate kids comics no, no hey kids
1: oh hey of course right
2: okay sorry yeah you were settling into your run on a de- in fact actually I think this may have even been actually towards the end of your run on uh, detective comics and I ended up having to backtrack a lot of the uh, the back issues but the end result of all of this is that you know I've heard it said about Peter Pan that the first Peter Pan you see is going to be your Peter Pan for the rest of your life right and I kind of th- think that the same thing applies for Batman the very first one that you see is going to be kind of yours for the rest of your life. Well, this one was uh, drawn by Norm Bray and so for that reason, yours is going to be the the Batman that I think about. Anytime the character's name comes up, I think of your version. <laughs> so, yeah, well,
1: I understand that. That's very satisfying, and, it, and it's a pretty universal thing. It's like it's almost like a human version of animal imprinting. Um, you know, where an animal the first Creature of newborn animal or new hatched bird, I think is the is the is the ideal um, example. The first creature it sees it, imprints it as its mother. I don't know if that's actually biologically absolutely true, but I've seen it throughout pop culture used in, like for instance, cart- animated cartoons and stuff. When I was a kid, I, that's the first time I learned about imprinting.
2: Oh. They played it.
1: They played it for a joke um, back then. But uh, imprinting is is a very common experience for young consciousnesses because you know everything is new so everything every new thing that you see has a bigger impact on you than than anything else because it's fresh and new same thing happened to me i mean for me neil adam well the first batman that i saw was was not the one that imprinted on me well actually i could say that the first batman i saw i don't even know which of, what it was but the the first batman that made a really huge impact on me i was about nine years old I think I was nine years old, in fact, same age you were, Mm. and I saw Neil Adams version of Batman, and that imprinted on me in a way that when I think of Batman, my ideal version of Batman, I tend to think of the Neil Adams Batman, not the more recent version in Batman Odyssey, which is – I'm not sure what Neil is doing there. That's some kind of uh, insane (laughs) self-caricature. But um, visually speaking, it still looks like Neil Adams' Batman to some degree, to a large degree. But Neil Adams in his early days when he was working um, at DC Comics on a regular basis, that's my version of Batman. Well,
2: that's Although a probably, very
1: good one. So, since I worked on Batman myself for so long, I, I could say that my own version of Batman is probably as strong in my mind as Neil's. I mean, that just makes sense.
2: Well, it's definitely strong in my mind. So now, whenever you first came on to a Detective Comics... This isn't anything I've ever read or anything like that in in, in an interview, but what what I've always sort of assumed was that this was actually towards the very early onset of your career. And so there were a lot of things about, I don't know, your own acumen as a penciler that you were still working out. And then That's that's correct. Well, it's just from, you know, coming at uh, all of this stuff as an outsider, and not just an outsider, but a very ignorant outsider, I don't really know a whole lot about art or anything like that. I just, I know what I like. It's – in a lot of cases, it's actually kind of hard to believe that this is um, so early in your career because there are a lot of mistakes that I associate with with new comic artists that, by and large, I just don't see that you you made in the run. I mean – so I guess first of all, how did you ever come about getting the gig for Detective Comics and also – your art went through so much evolution, and, and within a uh, one or so year period, it was almost like looking at a, at a different artist by the time it was all over. I mean, how did all this happen?
1: Okay, let me first um, address the uh, the more interesting element for me that, that I haven't really talked about as much as the other question. The, the mo- most interesting part of that question for me is how, um, how my art evolved and why I was uh, appeared to be more experienced than you would expect as a beginning comics artist. The reason I was as developed as I was when I started drawing comics is because I had always wanted to draw comics and I had been um, drawing comics on my own as an amateur for many years, um, 10 years at least. And back then at that at 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 a young age, you know, teenage years, 10 years is like half your lifetime. Oh yeah. So, um, plus I, I, did more than draw comics I've, I've been trained as an all-around artist um although not with the modern uh, computer techniques but as a traditional artist i, I um, learned to draw and from life and uh, also from other artists that I favored but i also but the most important thing i think is learning to draw from life from live models or from photographs and um wow and also worked in many different medias you know i uh, do full color painting and watercolor, colors, oils, acrylics—you name it—and um, so I, I'm just a all around trained artist. And so when I started on when I started in comics, um, actually I was working for First Comics. It was my first regular gig. Although I did a couple small jobs for um, I did, uh, for instance, uh, very early um, in my career when I was still working as a as a drafter and technical illustrator. I did a, a Legion of Superheroes one shot,
5: hmm.
1: um, but and and a couple of DC comics one shots like a New Talent Showcase. All this is actually listed on my um, on my uh, bibliography on my website, um, and you can probably find it elsewhere on the net too. But. Uh, I'm losing myself. What was the question again?
2: <laughs> Basically, there, there were two things. This was so early in, in, in your career, and but you avoided a lot of common pitfalls. Uh, how was that possible? And then I guess more broadly, how how is it that you uh, okay. uh, got the uh, Detective Comics gig?
1: Yeah. Um, anyway, what I was saying was that uh, – I was fairly well-developed as an artist already, quite well-developed as an artist already. In fact, I felt when I broke into comics, I broke in really way late because I had been wanting to draw comics um, since, geez, I would have been willing to start when I was 16, and I think if I had the right – if I had been living in New York – Back then, you had to live in New York to work in comics. This was in the, in the 70s. And if I'd had the right mentoring, I probably could have started that early because I was that, that developed okay. or that close to being professional. So it seemed like it took forever till 1984 when I first started getting stuff published at uh, New Talent Showcase, DC's New Talent Showcase. And um, it took a couple years after that before I started getting regular gigs. And, I, and those were at First Comics um, doing a backup for Bob Violence uh, for uh, – for Howard Chaikin's American flag called uh, Bob Violence, written by Stephen Grant. And then I got in my first full-time gig, um, my first monthly gig, which was Whisper, an ongoing gig. And uh, I was doing the penciling and the inking and the lettering and painting the covers. And it was, a, I think it was a 26-page book, but it was every two months. It was a bi-monthly book, or, or a bi, I guess I call it a bi-monthly, Once, one issue every two months. So it was only 13 pages, well, plus the covers, it would be 15 pages a month. But I was doing all that stuff, and I was meeting those deadlines for the first time. And even though I had been working on my own comics for, you know, 10 years at that point at least, um, and I'd been wanting to be a comic book artist since the age of 13 or so, um, even though that was the case, I I hadn't been forced to meet the deadlines on such a regular basis. And that was a real difficult time for me and, and it really proved whether or not I would be able to make it as a comics artist after a year or so on whisper I started feeling good about things when I felt when I realized that I was internalizing a lot of the research that I had been making because I had to research everything to make it look realistic at the beginning of my comics career drawing whisper um but after a year of doing that, I started internalizing a lot of things, and I was able to draw generic cards and generic guns and generic buildings and make them look realistic. So I didn't have to reach for research every time. So I started getting better and better at it. But I was still really fresh when I finally got the Batman gig, Detective Comics. And so I was still uh, – I had a bit of stage fright because even though I'd always wanted to draw Batman, I was still quite fresh in comics. I'd only been working professionally in comics for about two years when I got detective comics. So that explains the fact that I was still, that I was actually quite fresh, although developed as a general artist. That explains the learning curve that I went through um, on Batman. It was largely due to meeting deadlines because I was still refining my own personal um, formulas for, for, you know, all cartooning. Even realistic cartoon – drawing, in fact, is an abstraction from the infinite complexity of the visual field or near-infinite complexity, complexity of the visual field. So I was still refining what my own personal formula for that was when I got Detective Comics. And over the next um, 10 years, that's what really explains most of all the evolution of my art. was that I had to meet those deadlines, and I was still striving for quality and my own personal expression at the same time. <clears throat> I asked about how I got into comics, so that's the, that's the part of the question that isn't that interesting to me because I'm asked it all the time, as you can imagine. I kind of uh, talked a little bit about that at the, about men- when I mentioned my early gigs, but uh, what really started me into comics, well, first of all, when I was in college, I remember sending in samples to Marvel and DC Comics, and uh, the only response I got at that point was from Al Milgram at Marvel Comics, and this was back in 1970, um, 1980 or so. I think that he responded to me. And back then you, you had to work in you had to live in New York City uh, in order to work in comics because Federal Express overnight delivery hadn't been established yet. right. <clears throat> so I expected that I was going to be do that doing that when I graduated from college. Um, if I thought I'd be moving to New York City and trying to find work that way. But Federal Express changed all that, so I was able to send stuff in overnight. And um, what really got me into comics, though, was when I – after college, when I moved to – my family moved to California, I started, started attending the San Diego Con and showing my artwork in the art shows there and winning a few awards. My favorite one was um, second place behind Mobius. Oh, wow. Uh, 1984 or so. I forget the exact year. And uh, Mike Friedrich, Friedrich uh, a pre- previously a comics writer – Um, had his own agency going where he represented creators to comics um, editors, mainly, well, basically artists and writers, but also letterers, I think, and painters. Uh, His uh, significant other, Lee Mars, saw my work hanging in the show, one of those art shows, and pointed it out to him. And that's how my career really started. Although I had gotten a couple things published at uh, New Talent Showcase, that's right, I should backtrack. Um, At one of the San Diego cons that I attended, I attended also a uh, seminar held by Sal Amendola, who was an artist and an editor at DC Comics at the time. And he was editing New Talent Showcase. And so he gave me a couple of stories to illustrate. So that was the first thing, first stuff that I'd been published, had published on a national level until Mike Friedrich saw my work and started representing me to, to comics companies. And that's when I got Bob Violence at First Comics and Whisper. And uh, like I said, after after a year or so on Whisper, maybe two, I forget exactly, maybe a year and a half, somewhere in there, I got the Detective Comics gig. So it was all pretty, you know, I'd, I'd been practicing and striving and sending work in for a long time until I started getting work. And when I started getting work, it just all went really fast. And within two years, professionally, I was drawing Detective Comics.
2: Well, and you hit the ground running because I think – I don't know if it was your first issue on Detective, but it was within the first six months, I think, that you actually got to design your own Batmobile. How many people get to say that?
1: (laughs) Oh, well, today that's a totally different situation than it was back then. Back then, I didn't even ask my editor. When the Batmobile showed up in the the story – I, I had known already that there were a lot of Batmobiles around, and um, I, I had internalized, because I was a big fan of comics, and especially Batman, but comics in general. I had internalized the rules of comics, the ongoing, unspoken rules of comics through all of my comics reading. So I knew that um, new artists could basically just draw the bat, Batmobile any way they wanted, within certain parameters. You know, it has to look like a car, and it has to incorporate a Bat motif. So I just started doing that whenever I got the chance. I, I thought I saw it as a potential way, another potential way, for me to make a mark in comics, um, you know, make it to express my individuality. So um, I just started designing Batmobiles whenever they came up uh, in the script, a new Batmobile. But then I started finalizing my own design after uh, after I kind of settled on a, I think it was a Testa Ferrari Testarossa oh. invitation. And then I started uh, refining my own particular design after that. But then the movies came along. The first movie with Michael Keaton as Batman and Jack Nicholson as the Joker. Right. And um, within a year or two of that, DC Comics had uh, issued the edict to all of the Batman creators that we were to draw Gotham City as it was designed by Anton Furst in the movies and also the Batmobile as he designed it. So – I wasn't able to draw my own Batmobile versions anymore, which was too bad. I kind of enjoyed doing that.
2: Well, I liked yours a lot. It's just it had this sort of exotic car look to it, but it wasn't so specific. So at least to me, it didn't feel so model referenced or photograph referenced, I should say, that that you couldn't see it as anything else. I mean, sometimes whenever you and I think Neil Adams is maybe a good example. I think he based his Batmobile on a I think it was a Corvette Stingray. I think it was. And whenever you look at it, it's obvious that it's a Corvette that you're looking at, and you know whatever it's it's not it's one of those things that's not worth you know having a meltdown over. But at the same time, as far as just aesthetic preference is concerned, I always kind of liked the idea that Batman basically went out, he bought a car, and almost rebuilt it from the from the ground up, so that really it's the original frame and the engine that he kept, and then maybe everything else got thrown away. And so, and I, and that's why I liked yours so much because it looked like you know that. Somebody had had invested that kind of energy into it. So, yeah.
1: Well, the thing about the Batmobile that um, I find really interesting on many levels is that uh, it's it's traditionally it's a car that um, it's gone gone so far as to be a flying car or or a military vehicle in recent years in various incarnations. Right. But um, it is a car, and it's how Batman, Batman gets around Gotham City. At least when he has to get somewhere fast, or it's one of his modes of well, today it's his main mode of transport. But back when I was a fan of Batman as as a as an amateur, my favorite mode of Batman's transport was swinging through the city like like Spider-Man, right. which is which is understandable with Spider-Man because he's got I don't know how much strength he's got the proportionate strength of a spider, whatever how mo- however strong that is. But Batman's just a human being, and yet it's amazing how well I just took it for granted that he could swing through the city. And there are many issues where you wouldn't see the Batmobile back when you know. Dick Jordan, Irv Novik, and Dick Jordan and Neil Adams were drawing Batman. Um, You just see him swinging through the city as though he were Spider-Man, and uh, it was—it's funny how readily I accepted that without thinking about how totally exhausted he would be after just maybe going a block. You know, there's something about the fact that he's got this cape and that mask—that that that terrifying visage makes him seem more more than human, and allows you to accept um, what would really be a superhuman level of strength, even though he's technically well-known to not be superhuman at all. But wow. anyway, with a bat, Batmobile, the problem with a Batmobile, that's got a problem too, and that is that he's living in a metropolis. He's not living in Metropolis, but he's living in a metropolis, Gotham City, which um, was real, is really, as Metropolis is, a ripoff of New York City. And... If you've ever been to New York City, most people don't drive, and the reason is because the traffic is terrible. Batman would not be able to get around in his Batmobile,
2: and he'd be stuck in traffic, right? <laughs>
1: oh yeah, all the time. And yet, whenever I drew Batman in his Batmobile, it was at night, and it was like the streets were practically empty. <laughs>
2: um, and you know, maybe it was, maybe it's, it's just a sign of the fact that I, I invested way too much thought into this when I was a kid. But you know, it actually. I'm, in some ways, I'm actually kind of disappointed that you told me that because the, the, <laughs> the way that I looked at it was that you know Batman would uh, basically exit the freeway, which is perpetually free and open. He would exit the freeway and maybe drive about a block or so, park it, hide it, and then from there, he'd start swinging around on, on rooftops because he knows that that's going to be the faster way to go. And also, he's, yeah. got, a, he, he's got a brand that he needs to uh, keep active and, and visible in the public mind, and people are going to see him swinging around. And he knows that, and so it, it just kind of furthers his own myth. It also uh, allows him to travel around more freely. That's pretty much how I rationalized it, too. Oh, okay. All right.
1: But See, we are know, on the same page. Realistically speaking, it's absurd, of course, because he'd get totally exhausted.
2: Well, we we choose not to think about that as young people. And where does fans. he hide his Batmobile?
1: <laughs> in a metropolis, in where does he hide his Batmobile where people won't find it, you know? I guess he just owns his own garage or something. But you never got to see any of that. I mean, we just were left to think that out for ourselves. But then again, you know, kids accept the idea of Santa Claus serving all kids across the entire world in one night. So Batman swinging through the city, through Gotham City. Not getting tired out is really not a stretch of belief as much as Santa. So
2: Well, and there's that. But the other thing is, when I was a kid – one of the things that I was just very keenly aware of was the fact that Batman had this uncanny ability as a human being with no powers to dodge bullets. <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. that, that's completely impossible. If somebody points a gun at you and pulls the trigger, unless they're just a really bad shot, they're going to get you and there's really not much you can do to dodge the bullet. But somehow because it's Batman, we can accept the fact that it does. To me, it's just it, it kind of goes to the fact that there, may, there, there was a certain grit and, dare I say, realism to your style, but at the same time, I always felt like that there was enough uh, stylization to it that it's… It helped to carry your, dis, your suspension of disbelief. Exactly. And yeah. it's… I don't know. It's just… It's, well, uh, you know, the of the hero uh, not getting
1: shot is really common, not just in Batman, but throughout um, action uh, stories and movies. Oh, right. You know, Star Wars, for instance, they pick off these, these – uh, I'm not a big Star Wars fan, so I forget about the stormtroopers. They pick off the, – you know, our heroes pick off the stormtroopers with ease, one after the other, and yet they never get shot. Right, and they're I- – the same thing in Westerns. It's the same thing in any uh, heroic action fiction. And uh, that points to one of the things that makes Batman the most difficult of characters to portray. In any medium, especially in movies and live action, because it's you're actually got real people and probably why I think Batman works better in comics and in um, and in computer animation than he does with live action. It's because he's. If you make Batman too realistic, the the glaring impossibilities and the contra- the, the irrational contradiction of him being a norm, a human being, being able to do all this stuff becomes Far too obvious. But with with, um, computer-generated imagery or or made-up, you know, drawing, somehow it helps carry the suspension of disbelief because you're not looking at photographs of somebody. And that's one of the problems with Batman in the movies is that um, even disregarding all that, just his costume alone, or any superhero for that matter, but especially Batman because he doesn't have superpowers, his costume alone tends to look absurd because you know he's just a human being in there. Now, with Spider-Man, it's different. He's got superpowers, and it doesn't matter how he dresses. You're going to be freaking amazed at the things he can do. Um, but with Batman, the only thing that's, spectac- that's really otherworldly about him, literally speaking, is his accoutrements. And they don't really do anything. In fact, they would get in the way. His cape would get in the way in reality. his um, That's one of the things – for, for instance, all the armor that, that he's constantly given, that's meant to make it more realistic that he can survive – you know, gunfire. But at the same time, it takes away his ninja-like abilities. It takes away his ability to to be an expert martial artist because he wouldn't be able to move as well or as fast. He wouldn't be able to climb buildings as fast. He'd get tired out more easily. So Batman's got all these contradictions that make him, I, in my opinion, the most difficult of all quote superheroes. Although he's not super, technically speaking. Um, although he's <laughs> he does superhero things, it makes him the most difficult of all superheroes to portray. Well, and, that and actually kind of the most interesting of all superheroes because of that. You know, often in not just the superheroes, but in anything in life, the most difficult things to do, when done well, are the most valuable because they were so difficult. And maybe that's true of Batman too, because of that.
2: Well, that actually kind of leads into something that I've believed actually for a long time. But you know, um, if you if you'd rather not answer this question, that's fine. But i I consider myself to be a, a, a pretty big Batman fan. I really wasn't particularly crazy about Chris Nolan's uh, trilogy, though. And the reason for that was because I felt like, for, every th- for all the reasons that you just mentioned, the minute you put Batman especially in, 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 into the real world what what you really are doing is highlighting all the reasons why nothing like this could ever really be done exactly. in real life and so was that was it was that the reference point that you had about that about those movies if you feel like answering that or
1: oh that that pretty much nails it although that's one only one part of it the other equally um, relevant problem that i have with the nolan films is that the story made batman Less of his own man. I mean, he, he the way Nolan portrayed him, the way the Nolan films portrayed him,
2: mm-hmm. he
1: he was an unfocused, angry guy until Rachel Gold got a hold of him when he was an adult. That's not Batman. In fact, it makes it even more difficult to believe that Batman can do the things that he does. The thing about Batman that that one of the things about Batman, one of the main things about Batman that makes it a little bit more believable that he could do these what amount to superhuman feats is that he was so driven from the age of like nine or so whenever his parents were killed before his eyes. He was so driven to reach the peak of human ability in, 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 in the mental sphere and the physical sphere. And Nolan completely wiped that away. And not only that, he made Batman's creation a result of Rachel Gould. Right. Is one of his villains instead of his being his own man. The main problem I have, outside of what you mentioned, outside of the other things we mentioned about it being difficult to portray Batman realistically on live action, the main problem I had with the Nolan films, and well, especially the Nolan films, is that Batman is not his own man. In my opinion, we still have we we are still waiting for the best Batman to be portrayed on screen. For instance, w- one great example of this glaring lack in the Nolan films is. That because Bruce Wayne is unfocused until he meets Rachel Gould, we we don't get to see a montage sequence of showing young Bruce Wayne growing and building his physique, but through all of his acrobatics and his weightlifting and his training and his martial arts, you don't get to see that, and that is a as a bat as a very strong Batman as any very strong Batman fan of the comics or at least ninety some percent of them. I mean, Including me, uh, always felt about Batman is that that's one of the most important things about Batman. You know, it, it also helps you to feel. Um, it, for me, it, it helped motivate me as a young man to, to be a self-actualized individual. And Bruce Wayne in the in the Batman films is not a self actualized individual. He's actualized by Rachel Gould or Russell Gould, however you pronounce it. That's all another issue. <laughs>
2: Right. Yeah, and that's the other thing. It felt like everyone is sort of calling calling his tune for him throughout those movies. Lucius Fox
1: is his science guy. Instead of Batman being the supreme scientist, Lucius Fox has to tell him everything about science. That's ridiculous. That's not Batman. That's some guy in a Halloween costume.
2: Well, and the other thing is there's a – and now, of course, I'm blanking on which one it was, but you mentioned the montage. There's a really famous – I think it originated actually with Bob Kane – uh, sort of montage kind of splash thing where you see Bruce Wayne, he's playing with the Olympic rings, he's swinging around on those. He's on the, not the monkey bars, but the uneven bars. Right. He's uh, developing scientific experiments and, and whatnot. And it's it's one of those those visuals that apart from the cape and the cowl, as far as just, you know, the broader visual vocabulary of Batman, that's one of the strongest images that I think he has in his arsenal. And it got completely bypassed. And it, It's the foundation of the character's uniqueness. Without him being these things,
1: he's just a guy in a Halloween costume. You know, maybe a guy that's physical, maybe an athlete, maybe he's trained by racial Gould, so he's a good fighter. But there's no reason for us to think that he's the greatest, that he would be able to beat a bunch of martial artists in a fight. Because he's just the guy that was trained by racial goal recently. Batman has got to be somebody that has, his abilities are verge on the preternatural because he is so he has been so in what most people would consider to be insanely focused his entire life and that we haven't had that yet in a batman film we haven't really seen that they haven't really focused on that and it's a major failing because without that you're losing one of the most important aspects of the character
2: i agree and I don't think the realism was any benefit either, and that's one of the reasons why I thought that if what we're looking for is the definitive Batman film, and it's funny we're talking so much about movies rather than rather than your work, but here we are. Um, well, it applies I thought, to comics too in a lesser way, but go ahead. Right. Well, yeah, and actually that's very true. But I thought, well, it would be a a really I think good thing for Batman for. I, and I don't, obviously, I think it's off the table now, but at some point in the future, maybe some sort of a film that's done in the sort of 300 or Sin City style where you can go that's, a little bit further with stylized visuals like I you like might that. be able to in a comic book, and you're not necessarily bound by the rules of reality in ways that even Tim Burton was. For as out there as his vision could sometimes be, he still was stuck with the with using physical things on a physical set using physical lighting and all these other things that basically drag this thing into the real world perhaps even more than he intended but if yes. the technology that we have today it, it it's odd that the most human character in comics arguably we need a high degree of technology to kind of fully realize <laughs> but either way that's kind of where we are now and i thought that type of a presentation would be more beneficial to batman and you know what are your thoughts
1: Oh, I agree perfectly. I mean, Sin City is a really good example. Um, if Batman was done in the Sin City way, and not just an imitation, but ideally from the, from the core, meaning from Frank Miller 10 years ago or 20 years ago, <laughs> not from Frank Miller today, maybe, uh, that's arguable. But yeah, I agree with you totally. A Sin City-like version of Batman is what is required. Not, not a um, Dick Tracy, well, even Dick Tracy would benefit from that. N- not a, not a um, Columbo you know or right. or Kojak. Batman isn't isn't Kojak with a costume. Batman is a, a fantasy character. No matter how realistic you try to make him, in fact the more realistic you try to make him as we've said, it just points out all the more how much of a fantasy character he really is. So in, instead, you've got to have the right mixture of fantasy with reality so that you get a feeling for gritty reality but there's enough there's enough fantasy so that it aids your suspension of disbelief so that you're just completely
2: wow. Um, and that's actually one of the things that I to bring it all back. That's one of the things that that struck me about your work early on. It, it's not something that I would have I probably would have been able to articulate as a child, but it felt like there's a grit and there's a darkness to it. But that doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with realism that um, even in your fight scenes, for example, you know, Batman is sometimes he's stretched to these sort of really odd uh, sort of contortions that I think would actually be painful, but Mm -hmm. it works because it's Batman and it kind of, and it, 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 I'm trying to think of the best way to put it. It, it basically creates the, the, the world that you're, that you're setting up when he's in these really scary postures, whenever he's floating through the city and whenever he's fighting, six or seven people. Well, again, in the real world, if you fight six or seven people, unless you're Bruce Lee, you're going to lose. But because it's a comic book and because it's Batman and because of the style of it all, it works perfectly. And there's a style to it that it's it's all its own. And to me, that's really what I've always taken away from, from your run on the character. And so... <laughs> As far as my final question is concerned, uh, this is the last thing that I had in my notes. Uh, the character of Anarchy was introduced uh, during your run on uh, Detective Comics. And so, as with Scarface, I'm not sure if this is the sort of thing that you were basically given a character and told to visualize it, or if this, is, or, or if this was a yeah, collaboration with Alan Grant, but I'm kind of curious to find out.
1: Well, initially, it was just like with Scarface. Alan Grant, it appeared out of nowhere in a script for me, and... Um, we're talking about anarchy, not not uh, the ventriloquist. That's right. Um, right. And the only description, the only visual description Alan gave was that he was – I think he described him as a cross between Mad's spy versus spy characters and V for Vendetta. So basically – I knew all. it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> Oh, well, everybody knows that he's, incro- he's inspired by V for Vendetta. Did you think about the spy versus spy?
2: Not the spy versus spy thing, but uh, the V for Vendetta thing. I only started reading uh, uh, V like, for the first time, I think it was about 10 years ago, and it was nothing I could put my fingers on. But I was like, you know, this reminds me of something. And anyway, but yeah, that was actually something I – yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I, cu- I cut you off. Go ahead. V for Vendetta came first, of course. Oh, of course, right, right, right. You
1: might have read it later, but it came first. So, so And Alan was explicit in his um, referencing V for Vendetta in, in his description to me in the script. So uh, I – but, and I read V for Vendetta, so I knew the guy had a cape and a hat. And uh, I think Alan also suggested that he have a cane of some kind. So that's all I had, and I decided to uh, – well, I also had the fact that he, when he was first introduced, he was – just a young boy, like 13 or something, like like Robin's early age. Robin was when he was really young. and um, But he was masquerading as a man. So And Alan described that he had some kind of apparatus to make him look like, like an adult, um, an extended neck or something like that. So that was part of the character initially, and that's what I drew. Um, but, you know, since I was under deadline pressure, I didn't go into any real detail. The first incarnation, I just gave him like a... a a shoulder harness with a a elongated neck and I covered him in robes. I wasn't even specific about how the robes were designed. I just made, I just designed them as being red flowing robes. And, um, and then I gave him the anarchy symbol, of course, on his, on his helmet. I mean, on his hat. And, uh, to make it different from V for Vendetta, I made the hat, the dome of the hat rounded, which as soon as I did that, I realized, Hey, this looks like a, you know, um, 16th century uh, bishop's hat or a priest's hat, and uh, I kind of liked that immediately because Anarchy has this real pure um, moral sense, and uh, so I kind of that that gave me the idea of making his faceplate, which um, making his faceplate gold because to me that symbolized the purity of his of his moral quest. And uh, to make him different from Batman, I made sure that his eyes were black rather than white. I didn't want to just follow the old trope of having the comics characters' eyes be white. So I made them black so that it was more like an actual mask. Um, and also you couldn't see any eyes in it because Anarchy's head wasn't really in it. So it was really basically a really simple thing. And then, But then in uh, the miniseries that we did um, – Years later, based on the character of the Anarchy miniseries, I decided to have more fun with it, and I indicated in a few panels that Anarchy had. Well, I drew a number. I drew him wearing a number of different versions of his costume, and there was at least one panel where um, I drew a closet open in his um, in his hideout that showed that he had a whole bunch of different versions of the same costume. So I started get I, I started taking it uh, more seriously in terms of designing the costume. After a while. But, um, yeah, that's, he was basically a very simple character to begin with. I mean, visu- visually, he was just uh, just red flowing robes and, and a fake neck and a golden faceplate and a cane.
2: And to tell you the truth, this character actually sort of caught me off guard because he has a sort of cameo appearance in that, uh, that basically the death of Tim Drake's parents, <laughs> or mother anyway, uh, storyline. Uh, he had a sort of th- – th- there's a moment in there where Anarchy actually – uh, comes up, and then, of course, Tim Drake has to uh, deal with him. Mm-hmm. That was my first exposure to the character, and so it, I had no idea really who he was or what his story was all about. But when I finally tracked down some back issues and, and everything, I actually, the character kind of unexpectedly emerged as a as, as a real favorite of mine, and I always enjoyed it whenever, whenever he popped up in the story because it felt like he was never overused, he wasn't a crutch. You know, sometimes characters, uh, supporting characters in comics... And especially back in you know the late '80s and early '90s, could be just kind of there, but they're not really doing a whole lot. And mm-hmm. it, and it, and it felt like whether deliberately or not, you and Alan never really fell into that trap. At least with Anarchy, that if he was there, there was a purpose for it, and he contributed something to the story. Oh, it would have.
1: Those are good points. First thing I want to mention is that you mentioned Robin um, or Tim Drake, and uh, that made me remind myself to tell you if you don't know it, that uh, Alan has mentioned a number of times um, since that his, he was planning on grooming Lonnie Mackin Macklin or Macken, I forget, his, Macken, I forget his, how to pronounce his last name. I think it's Mackin. He was actually grooming him to be the new Robin in his own mind. And he didn't realize that Jim Starlin and um, and uh, Jim Apparel were already going to be, or Marv Wolfen and Jim Apparel were going to be introducing a new Robin over in, in Batman so that ended up not being the case and, and he's always kind of regretted that and me too now that I know about it I didn't know about it at the time but when, when I first heard it which was I suppose around 10 years ago I, it was like god that's too bad that uh, Lonnie didn't get to become the new Robin that would have been really interesting the other thing that you mentioned that is uh, even more interesting to me about the character more interesting by far actually is that he's, he's not just uh, another um Comics hero character fighting crime. He is very unique. The only one that comes close to him is an independent comics um, character, and that is V for Vendetta, right. um, which he was modeled on. And he's very unique because he's he's an. Well, Alan Grant has called him this, and I've called him this because Alan first brought it up. He's an Aristotle in tights. He's a philosophical superhero. The whole, um, the the whole motif of his being is a, is a political philosophical concept and that puts him on a on a intellectual level above just about any other um, main american comics hero character costume comics hero character he's unique in that he's pretty unique in that way i don't know if there's anybody else that uh, is really like that and uh, additionally he's also he's also uh, a young guy and he's a super genius so you put all that together and you've got a really unique character but it's it's that um it's that intellectual quality of his, of this fundamental reason for being, his raison d'être, that makes him so unique, and which is why I think he has lasting appeal. You know, he's not just. I remember when he was when um, it was first reviewed. The first issues of the Anarchy miniseries was reviewed by Whisper, I mean, by Whisper, by uh, Wizard magazine.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Their reaction was just that. Oh, another youngster who's. Uh, you know, anti-establishment, big big whoop, how boring. But they did—they completely missed the essence of the character. They, they missed the fact that his philosophy was quite sophisticated. No, I don't. He was a teenager, which helped to explain that even though he had a sophisticated philosophy, he was in error in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, he was a, a – people over the years, um, fans of mine have sometimes seemed to assume that I'm an anarchist because of that character.
2: I've never gotten that impression of you.
1: Yeah, well, I'm not an anarchist at all because I, I mean, in an ideal world, anarchy, real anarchy, you know, rational anarchy, as Alan Grant was putting, um, describing the character's philosophy, in an ideal world where human beings were perfectly rational, that would be the way to go, and that would be wonderful. But human beings are not rational, um, or at least not very rational. Um, you know, we're not uh, we're not computronium. We're not uh, robots. We're not. Um, we're not perfectly rational, we're biological organisms with a long evolutionary history that often does more, is self destructive and does more harm than good.
2: But one of the things, though, that, that I sort of liked about anarchy, and I only found out about Alan Grant's original intention form, I want to say is about <sighs> 10 years ago. You mean the Robin intention? Yeah. Okay. And I thought that one of the uh, real gripes that people had about the uh, pre crisis uh, Jason Todd was that. It's basically a photocopy of Dick Grayson. Now, whether that's true or not, that's how people felt about it. Right. And one of the things that when I, when I started thinking about anarchy in the context of Robin, he would have brought something, I think, unique and fresh to the, to the Batman and Robin partnership. And the way that he and Batman would have related to each other as, as partners, it would have been very different from what had come before. Yeah. And there's a sense in which anarchy kind of has something to teach Batman. Yes. And yeah. it's not as it, it, everything with uh, Batman and Robin up to that point had sort of been a, a a kind of a one-way street. Batman is constantly teaching Robin. Batman is constantly teaching Robin and Robin makes mistakes, Batman never does. This is this would have been more of a give and take sort of a thing. And I think you know, it, it, the minute he said that, I actually found it very easy to believe and I as as much as I love Tim Drake and I do, I kind of would have wanted to see that where he would have taken that.
1: Yeah, me too, very much so. Like I said, you said that Anarchy had something to teach Batman. That mirrors what I was saying—that um, Anarchy is a unique character in American costume hero comics. You know, even more unique than Batman. Batman is basically all about just fighting crime, and at that. Most, almost entirely street level crime, or well, it's funny. It's either street level crime in a, in a modern American city with thugs, or it's a, it's a super powered creature from outer space. But you don't get the in between where Batman, if he really cared about justice, would really be involved. But be, well, one of the reasons you don't get that is because Batman, unlike Anarchy, is an adult. So Batman would, if if you're going to make him really interested in politics, he. He wouldn't affect it through being Batman except maybe as, you know, as, as a corporate spy or something. <laughs> right. But uh, to actually be, get involved in politics, to be concerned in po- with politics and social organization the way that anarchy is, Batman would, would have to take a more prosaic or, or more, you know, what would be considered to be in comic books, a more mundane approach because he's an adult. while anarchy can get away with it with being both um, uh, a genius – and very well versed in politics but at the same time have an adolescent attitude towards it and think that he can just put on a costume and change the world batman wouldn't be that naive Um, he changes the world the ways that he wants to do it batman does you know he's basically on a quest to prevent the tragedy that he experienced as a child but he doesn't he, he doesn't expect to really change the world overall he just wants to preserve it anarchy wants to change it and that's a big difference and that would create a lot of interesting conversations between the two yeah
2: and actually you know what you it's it's funny how this conversation keeps growing here but one of the things that, that actually you just mentioned that has always kind of gone to the heart of who batman is for me as a character is that he's a he's an insanely wealthy person who has basically chosen to take the law into his own hands and to me if you follow mm-hmm. if if you follow that to the to the logical conclusion He's a fascist. Well, the, well, he, he's a fascist, but he's but whatever it is that he's doing, this is not an this is not a mission of altruism. He's doing this because the, he okay. has a psychological need.
1: Well, that's arguable. That's arguable. Uh, he he is an altruist. I always thought of him as an altruist, even as when I was a young fan, uh, even as an older fan, and today, because he's a he's a hero. He's a good guy. He stands up for um, victims. He's. I don't see how he can be any more altruistic than that. I think I know what you're saying, but go on.
2: Well, the, the, what I was going to say is that, let's face it, becoming a superhero and going out beating the snot out of street thugs and stuff, that those are pretty extreme measures. Yeah. He, he could have bought his way in, into the mayor's office and cleaned up the city that way. He could have right. become a cop. Right. There are any number of things that he could have done that could have improved the city and don't require him to— well, I shouldn't say not don't require him to break the law. I mean, obviously, it's it's pretty uh, legally and morally shady to uh, buy a uh, mayoral election, but you get the idea. Yeah. He, he could have improved society on the uh, on those terms, and he chose not to. And I always assumed that there's some <laughs> kind of a. Go ahead. Uh, I was gonna say where, what where I was gonna close out was that he uh, he obtained some kind of a uh, psychological satisfaction from. Being from being Batman, that being Mayor Wayne, or, or Officer Wayne, or whatever else, wouldn't necessarily give him.
1: Well, that's I would say that's one of the dangers of the Batman character that writers could fall into, which is just making Batman a character of pure vengeance and not altruism, not not justice. To me, growing up, holding Batman as, as a hero of mine, um, there was a certain amount of that, you know, vengeance, because it helped motivate him uh, on an emotional level, but I always knew that he channeled that towards justice and, and whether or not you want to use the word altruism, I would, I would say that he's altruistic as well. But, um, by the way, you mentioned, um, that if he wanted to change the city for the better or the world for the better, he would get involved in, you know, human level politics in some way. Um, that, that isn't necessarily the case. I mean, realistically speaking, you're right, of course, but, um, but um, uh, Frank Miller, I can't believe I almost mentally blocked his name out of my mind. Frank Miller uh, handled that that friction between those two spheres quite well in year one where he was changing the city with Jim Gordon's help as well. And that's one of the good things about the Nolan films is that they were able to show that Batman could also be a force for more good than just fighting street thugs. He could also influence um, the city as a whole. But, you know, you're right that I, I as I became more aware as I was a youngster, as I became more aware as I was growing older, I realized that, you know, there is there is kind of an obvious contrast between the fact that Batman supposed to be a genius and that he's supposed to be a big hero and that he's got all these abilities. And yet most of his time is spent just beating up on people that are a lot more poor than he is. <laughs> right. And it doesn't really seem very heroic when you look at it that way. All of that just helps to point again to the fact that Batman is not a realistic character. People say, oh, he's all he's the most realistic of all the superheroes. Well, in a sense, just because he doesn't have superpowers, but in another sense, he's less realistic than all of them because he doesn't have superpowers. You know? I mean, um, if he's put on a costume and get involved in all this stuff and risk his life all the time, it makes a lot more sense if you got superpowers.
2: On yeah. that level, on that level,
1: it's less realistic, and Superman's more realistic, or Spider-Man's more realistic.
2: You know, it's funny I've that's actually the the uh, mentality that I've had about it now for the past uh, couple of years. But the other thing that kind of bothers me uh, uh, about all of this is that it's almost as though when people say that there's a there's a, a sort of implied superiority that Batman has for 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 not having powers. Well, he's the most realistic there is, ergo he's the best as far as being the most interesting and the most compelling, most well-written, best drawn. I don't think that necessarily follows. I mean, I, you know I think he is Not one necessarily of the, go ahead. I was gonna say, well, I, I think he is one of the best characters in comics. There's no question about that, but I don't think it comes from the fact that he's somehow the most realistic. I think it just comes from the fact that the, he's had decades of uh, creative people who have worked on him over, uh, over the years that, let's face it, have done a, have, have done a marvelous job doing so, and it's attracted a, a very big audience, especially over the past 20 and 30 years. This character is better off now than he was at the – even under uh, Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, not to denigrate their efforts, but more people care about uh, and know about Batman now than they, than than back then, and I always just thought it's because he's an interesting character.
1: Well, I, I think the most universal – well, I shouldn't say that. Probably the main thing that drew me to Batman as a, as a fan and as a youngster was that um, – it was fun to imagine being able to do the things that he could do. Now, it's fun to do that with Superman and Spider-Man too, but you know you'll never have superpowers. With Batman, you're skirting the edge of reality without being realistic. You're imitating reality, but you're tricking the the, the mind. You're tricking your mind into feeling like there's a realistic aspect to it, and in a the sense there is, but it's really not realistic at all. The, the main thing about Batman that's interesting to me is, is – the idea that the on an emotional level i mean is the feeling that that you could transcend your human level but still be human you could do superheroic things without losing your humanity and of course that's totally unrealistic
2: right <laughs> right it is
1: yeah bam it's bam it's not about realism
2: he's he's
1: he's about Faking realism, which is an interesting self-contradictory term. He's he's the character that, of all the superheroes, so to speak, Alan Grant doesn't like calling him a superhero because Batman doesn't have superpowers. To me, that's just a semantic question. But he, among the superheroes, he's the one that uh, I forget, I lost my train of thought. I was going to say something that I thought was brilliant. <laughs> I'm just going to repeat myself anyway. It doesn't matter.
2: All right. Well, what I originally talked to you about was uh, 20 and 30 minutes, something like that. And we're closing in on an hour now. So um, maybe it's time to just uh, uh, go ahead and, uh, and uh, cut it off. But before we do, how about you tell people uh, what what you're up to right now? I, I think Batman Beyond is still going. No. Well, it's still going on, but I'm not doing that anymore. Oh, you'd for okay. Reason,
1: for some reason, this DC decided to change all the creative teams on Batman on whatever the title was that included Batman Beyond and J- JLA Beyond. Um, our numbers were good from what I heard. Um, they'd gone down, as usually happens after you get a new creative team, but they were still good. They were better than, from what I understood, they were better than the number of other titles that have continued to be published. Mm. But I don't try to second-guess uh, editorial decisions anymore. I never really tried, and when I did try, I all I could come up with was a lot of different possible reasons and i'm not in their shoes so i i don't really judge their decisions i don't I, I just say that i don't know why they took us off the book or they changed all the creative teams and I, hopefully you know it was a good decision and their numbers have gone up i haven't checked it would be interesting if they went down i would love that actually
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay well then um what well what are you working on right now that people can uh, go out and take a look at
1: um i'm not on a monthly title right now
2: okay.
1: um I'm, i've got a number of uh Non-comics illustrations on my drawing board that I'm working on. One of them is kind of a comics form, but it's not comics. It's not um, a monthly title. It's an ad, uh, a comic book campaign ad, uh, not comic book, a comics form campaign ad for soul gum, which will be seen within the last next few months. I just finished um, an illustration for Business Life magazine, which is a European business magazine, and uh, I've got, I've still got. 48 pages to pencil for a first salvo which is a comics company out of Bermuda um, who I worked for which company I worked for um, seven years ago and uh, this next 48 pages are going to be the last 48 pages fi- finally finishing the story arc that we began back then Excellent. after that um, I've got a well I've got a lot of commissions to do that have been building up and I've been putting them off one of them is a painting that a guy commissioned for me as much as God, I don't know how long, at least four, maybe five years ago. And he's been very patient. So I've got to get around to that this year. I was, I keep telling him every summer, I'm going to do it this summer. But <laughs> I took the whole summer off this last summer. And yet I didn't get to it because instead I felt like I had to focus on my, my, on my physical conditioning because I'd let myself really go. So it took all my energy at 53. It took all my concentration to get in shape again. And so I didn't get around to that painting. Um, and then, uh, Anyway, after, after all of that, um, I've got nothing else planned and I should be free around oh, January or February. And uh, I won't even be necessarily looking for work. If any comes my way, I will have to make a decision if somebody makes me an offer. But um, it will be a difficult decision because I've been telling myself for over a decade now that when I've got the, the time and the money, I will finish some of my own projects. Because uh, start, I started a novel like 13 years ago. Really? Uh, yeah, a science fiction novel. I won't tell you any details about it. But um, whenever I start writing, I get really into it. And in fact, I get into it more than I get into drawing, probably because writing is fresher for me than drawing is because I never really made a living with my writing. But um, – I've also got a number of short stories that I've written that I would love to put together into a book, and I've got a lot of poetry that I could fill a book up with now. And actually, I love writing poetry probably more than anything else, which is strange because on a number of levels. One, because you know I'm, com- I'm known as a comic book artist, and you- most people aren't interested in, uh, in poetry, especially comic book art, um, fans. And yet, I love writing it and on another level. What's interesting to me is that I don't really enjoy reading other people's poetry at all. Very few other poets have I ever read or enjoyed, and yet I really love writing my own poetry. (laughs)
2: So
1: anyway, I I would like to uh, finish those projects and I don't have any ideas about how I would get them published or not. I've never self-published. I might do that if I have to. But uh, that's where I'm at these days.
2: All right. All right. Well, either way, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, join me today. And uh, you're actually the first uh, comic book pro that I've ever had on my show. And the reason for that is because I have a tremendous affection for your work on uh, Batman over the years, and, and especially in recent years, but going all the way back to the start of your career and... To me, this is Batman, so uh, thank you very much uh, for that, and also thank you very much for uh, joining me today. A lot of fun. I really enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> All right, well, uh, you take it easy, and bye, everybody, and I'll see you next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah play it. <clears throat> Come on, hey Play it loud! Play it loud!
0: And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Illogic. Foolish emotions. A constant irritant. And transpire out freak! Two! Come on, the circus. Right next to the dog-faced boy.
5: True!
4: I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, shit!
0: Thanks! Oh. It's a super-prize package worth $9,300.
1: This isn't the biggest bag over the head. Punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! Ow! Go away, Biden! And now... <laughs> together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts... Scott Gardner.
3: He killed a police officer for Christ's sake! Yeah, goddamn lucky he didn't kill all of And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of
4: humor, and you smell. So you're looking at me? Yeah,
0: because
3: she thought you're some kind of freak. Now come on, let's go. go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! Surely you I say shut up!
0: It's a man of, a man of, to truefreakscom
4: I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. <coughs> <clears throat> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not daredevil. Blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night? No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster. But you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil, you get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness and you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is Daredevil Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? <laughs>
0: Together from the disparate reaches of geekdom Here in this restaurant booth Are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled Ryan, the toy geek Scott, the award winning radio host Jeff, Scott's minion and run. Just run. Dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks, proudly crusades at 2TrueFreaks.com.
5: Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Man, it sure is great to be back from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-Death and Return Superman stories.
4: Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle
5: For and Fall of Metropolis.
4: Superman Doomsday Hunter Prey.
5: Worlds Collide.
4: Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again.
5: And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well.
4: Well, most of them, anyway.
5: Yeah, yeah, some of those really did suck, don't they?
4: But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before.
5: You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com.
4: And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com, slash, from crisis to crisis, a superman podcast.com.
5: Is it.com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, No.com, forget that. <laughs> so, From Crisis to Crisis is back, folks, and better than ever.
4: Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you shut
5: up. No, you shut 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 up. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman one half month at a time, every Thursday at www dot supermanhomepage.com and com.
3: If you like strange pop culture, if you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is, if you like just that kind of stuff, old radio, um, obscure, unmarketable pop culture, uh, strange chip tune music—all um, sorts of things like that can be found on the Quake Reversal Satellite on the Overnightscape Underground at o n s u g dot com. It's an amazing show at an amazing place. Full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions. Hours and hours and days and just O-N-S-U-G dot com. Take a look around and I bet you you'll find something.
2: Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R. E-N-T-U-S M-A-G-N-U-S Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, Please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested, just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons, or real life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with De Mansocor of Milan, Italy.